Welcome back to Dying to Ask. Have you ever Googled medical information? Of course you have, probably recently, maybe even today. It is incredible how much information and misinformation we can get about a medical condition in just minutes. The Google toolbar has been the go-to for a lot of us during the pandemic, but the problem is you can get really, really bad information. You can convince yourself that you're either dying or you're healed, sometimes in the same search result. My guest today is Dr. John White. He is the chief medical officer at WebMD, which is a great place, by the way, to go look for medical information. Dr. White is one of those super smart people who has a knack for dumbing things down in a way that the average person can understand without feeling like it's being dumbed down for them. And that is a gift. He spent 10 years at the Discovery Channel as the chief medical expert and traveled the world seeing how diseases affect people in different countries. He also worked in government. He was the director of professional affairs for the FDA. And now he's at WebMD because he thinks there's nothing wrong with diagnosing yourself as long as you get a second opinion from somebody who actually went to medical school. I connected with him after he started doing some appearances on our morning news doing COVID Q&As. So I reached out to him about this idea that I've been thinking about for a while. And that is, how can we be ready to embrace life when the pandemic ends? What should we be doing right now to get stronger physically and mentally for the other side? On this time to ask, three things to do right now so that you are ready to live a happier and healthier life post-pandemic. And there will be a post-pandemic, people. The WebMD search that we are looking at seven times more than we used to before social distancing was a thing. The question he asks patients knowing that they've been Googling their symptoms. And who hooked Dr. White up with his first TV gig? I guarantee you know his name. The doctor is in on this week's Dying to Ask. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and I've been anchoring morning news for more than 20 years. I know two things. One, that phrase, I'll sleep when I'm dead, is starting to seem likely. And two, the best conversations take time. Dying to Ask is my chance to have longer, more meaningful conversations without a producer yelling rap in my ear. Personal change requires personal growth. And these days, plan B is the new plan A. Ready to do life bigger and better despite the Rona? This is Dying to Ask. Well, Dr. White, thanks for joining us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. I'll ask because somebody will come at me later if I don't say this on, on recording, but is it okay to call you John? Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. good. <laughs> somebody later will say, you really should have been more respectful of Dr. White, but I figured since you called me and you identified yourself as John, I'm in the clear. Sure. Well, and that someone, of course, is my mother who would probably tell me that. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining us. It's really interesting uh, to get to talk to you. And I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Where are you these days? Where are you working? So I'm right outside of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. WebMD is based in New York City as well as Atlanta. But during the pandemic, I'm staying at home. Normally, I would travel to those locations, but everyone needs to stay safe. And, and that's what I'm doing with my family. Yeah. And technology, and certainly that's what mm -hmm. WebMD has been doing for years. Yeah. Technology has allowed us to do our lives in a really different kind of way. Um, how did you come to be at WebMD and what exactly is your job there? How do you describe it to people? Yeah. So my job is it's a new role, uh, chief medical officer. They didn't have it prior to my arrival a little over two years ago. And it's, you know, it's part editorial in terms of helping the editorial team 
think about new topic ideas. It's also new strategies. How do we extend our brand? I was very interested in creating a live events business prior to COVID uh, and had worked on that from the topic of thought leadership here being in DC. You know, how can we talk about healthy aging? How can we talk about living donor transplants and, and really sponsor these events as a convener for WebMD in terms of having that dialogue that's not always just on a specific disease topic, but more broadly about how do people access the healthcare system? You know, what do they need? Uh, so it's, it's really a mix of different things. And, and certainly the past year has changed the role somewhat right. in terms of addressing COVID, making sure we provide the best information, being an ambassador for the brand. So it's, it's an exciting time to, to be involved in healthcare and in digital health and, and really strategizing how do we move online content to mm -hmm. actually finding. So it's exciting. How did you get into the storytelling of medicine? Because everything you just yeah. described has nothing to do with diagnosing somebody. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's really yeah, interesting. Right. I mean, like your background is so interesting. How did you get into yeah. the, the mm -hmm. storytelling part of yeah. it? And, and I do still see patients typically one day a week. And, and I'll tell you, I, I thought I'd be a surgeon and I'm not a surgeon, but <laughs> like I realized- What was the dream I, when, when, when John yeah, was a little boy? What was yeah, the dream? I thought I'd be a surgeon. And okay. uh, then I realized with surgery, it's very hard to do other things that you might be interested in, like health policy issues. And yeah. then I decided I wanted to go into internal medicine because I really like that relationship with patients that you see over time for many years. And I liked to be part of a bigger team of trying to manage patients' care. But I also- do, do you figure that kind of thing out when you're in medical school? Like, are you exposed to- Yeah, enough? I figured that out in medical school. I was like, no. Yeah, like, no, I don't want to do surgery, uh, really, as you start to go through it. But I was also interested in health policy. Now it's funny, because I, I uh, give medical students a hard time, and they're like, I want to do policy. I'd be like, I don't know what that, what, is, <laughs> what does that mean? But I was interested in like health economic issues. How do we finance the healthcare system? How do we ensure equity? Even, you know, 20 years ago, I was interested in that topic. So I thought, how do I do that? You should that? have been interested in fortune telling because that's really what you were doing yeah. 20 years yeah. ago. <laughs> so how do I do that while, you know, still managing clinical care? Because a lot of people gave me the advice, become a good clinician. And mm -hmm. I felt that's where I choose my residency at Duke. I did a fellowship and studied the healthcare system. But I'll, I'll tell you, Deirdre, the healthcare system is very hierarchical. So when I said, oh, I want to, you know, be involved in these other issues of, of healthcare, before that was really popular. And they would say to me, oh, John, uh, work in clinic, you know, for 10 years, serve on some <laughs> committees. And I'd be like, but, and this was in California at the time I was at Stanford. I was like, well, you know, I, I want to be involved in some of these policy issues. So wasn't really able to make it work in, in California. So I moved to Washington, DC and worked at Medicare on many of these policy issues. And that's interesting. Cause you've been, you were, you worked the FDA. I mean, you did a lot of government yeah, yeah. work. And, and you know, which some and, might say is the slower way. To, I mean, like stereotypically, I've done both. I think is a so, much slower way to try to communicate and, and create change. It is, but it's important content, and it's it's very much how do you impact people's lives when you're talking yeah. about populations, whether you make a drug available, whether you make a certain service available. But you know, back to how I became involved in, in storytelling. And you're right; is and this is the truth. I met Mehmet Oz in. 
1999 before say Oprah no more came. i get it when he was just it. when he was just after us. Yeah. and he was running this healthcare conference on uh like devices in in heart disease and i worked on devices at medicare so i i came to the conference and and i got to know him and a couple years later he's like oh my you know former roommate is president of discovery channel and we, would you go over there and run this health and medical programming I was like, why would I do that? Because <laughs> <laughs> like, Dr. Oz told you to. I'm a government employee and I, I work on policy issues. So he's like, at least have lunch with them. So I did. And of course, he shows up. <laughs> and they're like, well, why don't you think about it? And, and they kept at it for you know several months. And the attitude was, well, you know, come over and try it. And if you don't like it, someone said to me, you could call it your sabbatical. And I thought, no one in the real world uses the word sabbatical, yeah. other than like the government <laughs> or academics. And I thought, you know what, I don't have much to lose. I don't have to move. Um, and I, I went to Discovery and I, I stayed there 10 years almost. Uh, my one year sabbatical turned into a decade. And that's where I really learned the power of storytelling. And, and I'll tell you, I didn't know that when I got there, you know, I, I want to create this diabetes show and have like all these data points in and tell everybody everything. Cause I thought I'm going to get these millions of people. And honestly, the shows at the beginning were lousy and, and people would tell me your shows are lousy. <laughs> like you have too much, <laughs> you, you have too much data. Like people yeah. tell them one or two points, but tell it through the power of someone like them. Yeah. telling their story. So we call Have it in, in storytelling and journalism, we call it humanizing a story. And it's the reason Absolutely. why when you see a, a television news story, yeah. um, just taking our listeners behind the scenes right now, you'll often hear the story from the perspective of one person. It's not yeah. because that one person's story is reflective of all, but it allows you to connect with it just mm -hmm. like you would in the grocery store if you were chatting with a woman in, right. next to you in line. Yeah. You have that personal connection. And that's the power of, you know, like you're just saying, like a show about diabetes, you can make diabetes as interesting as you yeah. want if you have the right person to connect right. with. And I'm sure that's what you eventually yeah. figured out. How yeah, that it took a while to figure yeah. it out. But, <laughs> but I at did. some point on a show like that, you need somebody like you to run that data because the data is still very important, you know, so that yes, you are is. providing factual information. It must have been interesting to um, work with more experienced storytellers to blend those two together because that takes a lot of trust from both sides. Absolutely. I, I learned a lot from my colleagues because we also had to find the right story that it couldn't just be what we call the anomaly. It had to be someone who people can relate to. And sometimes that's a challenge, as you know, in health programming, people want the 200 pound tumor. I still remember yes. that. And we did a 150 pound tumor or they want half ton woman that has to be you know, the roof has to be cut off and helicopter has to go in, you know, those get good ratings, but am I really helping people understand a health issue? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So it's, it's really that mix, but it's a great combination at places like Discovery where they say, let's have these medical and scientific experts and let's have these great producers and put it together and tell the right stories. And the great thing about Discovery, is it does have a big denominator. So you can mm -hmm. reach a lot of people. It's the same thing at WebMD, 81 million people come to the site every month. You have an opportunity to inform people. And what I learned is you have to entertain them. We would say it's yeah. medutainment or you know, edutainment. <laughs> so it's medical stuff and entertainment or it's education. 
and entertainment. And I think the biggest um, challenge that people have, they think I'm going to build a website or I'm going to make a show and all these people are going to automatically come. As you know, it doesn't work that way. No. You really have to find a hook to get people in or you have to optimize it in, in terms of search and it, it takes work. And, you know, what I also learned is, you know, in news, um, television and media are very reliant upon data. Like, and people forget that there's great data analytics in terms of who's your audience, how is it changing, how do certain shows rate in terms of different demographics. It really is a treasure trove of data that people tend to discount, and that sometimes has been a challenge at first. If you work in the media world, sometimes people think in medicine you're not as serious, but but that's not true right. at all. Yeah. No, it's really not. But you're right. You do have minute by minute analytics of how many yeah. people were watching, listening, uh, connecting. Social media works very like this as well. But I always say it's it's a little bit like being a preacher in the South. You got to get them into the pew first. Yeah. But once they're in the pew, they're mm -hmm. listening. And then you can sometimes, you know, you might bring them in with, you know, the 500 pound tumor or whatever, mm -hmm. but they will stay to listen to the diabetes show. And yeah. they be, you, be, you be build this connection. And really you're talking about whether it was your work with Discovery or your current mm -hmm. work with WebMD. Yeah. It's just about communicating. And that, Absolutely. especially over the last year for all of us mm -hmm. has been critical because we are not communicating just with each other in the same ways that we were this time last year. I'm still thinking about those 100 pound tumors. <laughs> they always like are on your back and somebody in yeah. Romania and you think, how did it get this big? <laughs> it is pretty interesting. I will give you that. And that's, that's probably like 16 years ago and I can still... <laughs> remember those but but let me let me just ask you real quickly yeah. and then we're, we're going to move on to yeah. some other things but but like i mentioned you have like one of the best bios ever and, and i'm not even talking about the like i went to duke and all the rest of it you've done some really interesting things through these interesting jobs mm -hmm. you've done and you mentioned the the diabetes to, the, mm -hmm. um, documentary, but you also got to travel a lot mm -hmm. with your role with Discovery, yeah. which i thought was really interesting i mean you had a chance to like travel the world yeah. learning about medicine mm -hmm. I literally traveled to every continent except Antarctica. It, it really was exciting. But Deirdre, what was really powerful about it is, you know, it wasn't focused on going to the tourist attractions. Like in India, in Chennai, it was going into people's homes because we were filming places that I never would have otherwise gone. Gone to the, to the local doctor's offices, gone to the local churches because we talked about spirituality at times. So that's what was really exciting to be able to have gone everywhere around the world, even these remote villages. I remember we were going to another remote village in India and someone was like, well, remember, you know, don't touch any of the wild dogs. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm not going to know that. And you know, in Brazil, we were in the middle of, you know, I've never seen a uh, robbery at an ATM machine <laughs> oh, <laughs> when yeah. we were in Sao Paulo, where all of a right. sudden a bunch of people, it wasn't us, but a bunch of people on motorcycles swarmed uh -huh. to a person at an ATM. And that was the first time that I actually saw, you know, firearms up close. And, and luckily yeah. we were okay, but I thought, oh gosh, I mean, we went to South Africa, which is really, as you know, a, a story of two worlds in, in Cape Town, the haves and the have-nots still. So it really was eye-opening and gave me a greater sense of 
what medicine and health mean globally, as well as that you really have to target your communication to different audiences. One message doesn't fit everyone. And, and that's you must where have I really thought about a lot of these people in these places over the last year as we looked at how the pandemic has affected, obviously, not only Americans, but literally every single person on this planet. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, part of the challenge, and this comes to the issue of, you know, vaccines, sometimes I think we are too nationalistic in a way. And if you think about in terms of vaccines, we really have to vaccinate everyone around the world. Otherwise, we're not going to be safe because the virus will just, you know, come back in some type of transmitted form that vaccines may or may not protect us. So we do need to have a global perspective at times in, in terms of health and, and economics and, and other issues. Let's talk about Web, WebMD and digital mm -hmm. health and how we have utilized um, resources like this in the yeah. last year. You know, I have always been somebody who would Google my way and come mm -hmm. in with all my stuff. I mean, I'm the person who goes into the doctor's office and you're like, oh my gosh, here she comes again. You know, she's <laughs> diagnosed herself. Now, nine times out of 10, I've been right <laughs> through my research. <laughs> but, but I have noticed in the last couple of years, physicians being much more open and definitely expecting people to have gone to sites yeah. like WebMD to mm -hmm. educate themselves. Mm -hmm. And obviously going to the right site is critical okay. in getting good information because there's a lot of bad mm -hmm. info out there as well. But have you found that in the last year, because of the pandemic and us being at home, that it has really sped up the acceptance of this type of, of, of learning about your health? I mean, it yeah. seems like telemedicine has taken a jump you never could have planned for. Yeah, absolutely. Because people didn't have any alternative. You couldn't go in to see the doctor early on. They just weren't allowing people to come in just because of safety issues. And, and I'll tell you, people don't come in as much with the printed forms. I used to print it a long time ago. Yes. But, I, but <laughs> I, did ask, I did ask them, and I don't tell them I work at WebMD. I do ask them, like, what do you think it is? And, and that's partly because that tells me about what their anxieties are, sometimes why they're really there when they have you know, a reason that doesn't quite resonate. So I do say, what do you think it is? And sometimes they're right. Sometimes they aren't. I do know, as, as you know, that there's a lot of misinformation on there. I have a patient who told me several weeks ago, she always goes to whatever is first because that's Google ranks them based on, you know, how accurate they are. That's not how Google ranks them, as you may know. And sometimes they're an ad up on the top. But telehealth really has changed how care is delivered. And it's not going to be 80% of visits as it was near the fall of last year, but it's not going to be 2% what it was last year this time. I think it's going to hover around 30 to 40%, depending upon what specialty. I can't do everything in a, in a telemedicine visit. But even more important, I think it becomes the issue, what I've been talking about, and you mentioned Discovery Channel, there's this DIY approach in healthcare that started pre-COVID and has been supercharged and accelerated by COVID, this do-it-yourself approach. You know, just as people can rewire their garage door and, you know, build a new kitchen, a lot of people are saying, I want to manage my own health. So I'm going to use, you know, Google and search to put in my symptoms. We have a symptom checker to find out what it might be. I'm going to download apps. Why wait three to six months for a dermatologist? If I can download an app, take a picture, upload it, and maybe be able to get a preliminary read at the end of the day. That can right. help a lot. It may not tell you everything because you may have what's called satellite lesions that are around it that you might not have taken it, or you may not do the picture correct. Distance matters. We've right. seen- But the tech is, article. I mean, I guess the yeah. point is the tech has gotten really good. Yeah. We all have trackers. 
<laughs> chapter, there you, go. <laughs> right? you know, sleep scores. It's really empowering patients to take more control of their health and share in decision-making. So they can come and tell me, you know, about their, their sleep and they can correlate with that feedback. They have low sleep score and they realize they don't feel well in the morning. I'll tell you several months ago, I, I was probably not drinking enough water and I was having some palpitations. And I thought, Ooh, that's not good. But I printed my own EKG, Get smart, out. which anybody can do. Anyone can do. And it does interpret it. But I thought, you know, I can see when my heart rate is quick enough and then drinking more water, you know, I did better. But in the past you would have to be like, Oh my gosh, I better go to urgent care. Or I better get an appointment today. You, you can't do that right now right. to some degree. And I just think that's what's exciting, all these trackers and sensors and wearables. I remember at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, not this year, but last year, it was all about sleepwear. Your pajamas mm -hmm. can give you feedback, your slippers <laughs> can give you feedback. Right. But what we do have to figure out is how are we going to structure this data? Now, the two exciting things I'll tell you that I think are in development is this uh, device you could put on your tooth that could measure many aspects of acid in your mouth, bacteria, you know, that, that's going to be interesting. <laughs> Even more so is, you know, we talk about fancy glitzy lasers that can tell my heart rhythm from, you know, a thousand feet away, and that can be used for identity. What really matters when we have limited resources, a device I can put on my toilet that'll be able to monitor me every single day. So it'll check my urine for ketones, maybe sign of prediabetes. It can check for UTI. It looks at your stool for blood, which could be not just hemorrhoids, but colorectal cancer. That's where I think the future is going to be, Deirdre, in terms of the future is in the toilet, Dr. White. It is, it is. Yeah. Use that, hopefully. That's <laughs> do, crazy. Do We're moving the trend towards, I'm going to do more and more at home. And why should I drive 30, 40 minutes, maybe longer, or take public transportation to get to the doctor's office, wait 30 to 40 mm -hmm. minutes, and then have a 10 to 15 minute visit? Patients are not going to be willing to do that. Consumer expectations have changed. Look, you can get most of your own lab work without seeing the doctor anymore. And, and that true. was supercharged by COVID. You could order in some states, because it's usually regulated by states, you can go to a lab and ask for your, your lipids, your chemistry, your blood count without having to see the doctor. We want you to still engage with the doctor, but that's the trend. There's so yeah. many kits I can order and spit into <laughs> do other things. It's just amazing. Get some I mean, but you're talking a lot about personal responsibility for one's health, which is interesting to me that you're seeing more of that. But at yeah. the same time, we have these crazy high levels of diabetes and mm -hmm. of heart issues and of lifestyle-induced issues. Yeah. Why is there still that disconnect? Why do people Why do people around the world look at Americans and say, yeah. how can you be so smart and yet have these issues? You know, it's hard to make lifestyle changes, let's be honest. And people don't always make the connection. And I'll tell you, at least once a year, you know, and I often fill in for doctors, with their patients and I'll say, well, you know, if you lost weight, you could probably come off your diabetes medicine. And at least once a year, someone will say to me, you know, Dr. White, I've been overweight for 20 years. I've only had diabetes for a year. So they're not making that connection that their weight has contributed to their 
diabetes. It might've taken 10 years to get to the point. So they're looking at it as well. It must be something else. It's not just because mm-hmm. I'm overweight because I've been overweight for so long. Or, you know, patients always tell me they eat healthy. And then I'll say, well, what did you eat for breakfast? And this was last week. And someone said, well, I just drink coffee. I'm like, okay, <laughs> and then I said, what, what do you do for lunch? They're like, oh, I usually go to like a subway uh, or order it. I'm like, well, that's processed meat. And then they're like, but I eat fish for dinner three days a week. So, you know, in some ways we don't always recognize that. We know that men are not good about assessing their health and their weight. And many men are overweight, but they don't see themselves as overweight. So there's still that, there's still that. That's right. So you don't make those changes that we know you need to do. You know, nobody wants to hear you can't eat red meat. You shouldn't drink soda. You know, you need to cut out sweets. Those are hard things to do. And those are lifestyle changes that we need to sustain over time. But I think much of it is is still education and getting people focused on it. You know, I've been a big proponent. How do we get patients to think of exercise as a prescription? Because you won't take your prescription medicine or shouldn't take your prescription (laughs) medicine, you know, once every three days. But for exercise where we know there's tremendous value and it's not about having to go to a gym and we've learned that, what can you do daily? that's gonna exert your heart rate. And I think we might see a trend given that a lot of us are working from home. Are there still gonna be the corporate gyms? Are there still gonna be you know, building more gyms or might employers give you a subscription service mm-hmm. that you can try some healthy apps and online programs at home? So I still think there's a lot to do and in underserved areas, I can say all I want about eating fresh fruits and vegetables, but I've had patients tell me, you know what? The dollar menu goes a long way when you're trying to feed yes. hungry kids and hungry yeah. family members. So if you don't make it affordable and nourishing in different ways, people aren't going to do it. We can't be naive and talk about all the fancy things that people should eat that are healthy. We don't, we don't, we don't explain it enough. So we have a long way right. to go. And, and there is a, a layer of convenience that is also really yeah. important for the way we live these days as well. Let's, you know, let's it's funny. transition. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I just say one thing, because we, we talked about, you know, I have young kids. We would never let our, our young kids say after once or twice, oh, I don't like fish or, oh, I don't like this yeah. or that. But, we, we, you know, we make them try it. We say at least seven times. But for adults, you know, we just say, no, I don't like that. Like, you know, I had a patient who actually told me once she didn't like water. <laughs> but I know what she meant she's like (laughs) right I I always love when people say I don't like the taste of it like there's no taste (laughs) there is no taste to not like there is work to do we we have to give people ideas and advice absolutely so as we look to Mm -hmm. say coming out of the pandemic on on the other side of this What are your thoughts about where we will be in terms of the mental health component? Because I, I feel like I, this year, have more friends and colleagues mm-hmm. who have never really publicly struggled with, with mental health, who are just beaten down after this last year. Mm-hmm. And I do worry, like when I hear people talking about, you know, mm-hmm. oh, it, it's all going to be better as soon as everybody's vaccinated and we have our herd mm-hmm. immunity and like everything is going to go back to normal. Yeah. And I just don't believe that. I mean, I'm not saying that we're not going to go back to the things we used to mm-hmm. do, but I just feel like this is going to linger for a while. Now, I did not go to medical school, but I did look at WebMD. (laughs) And I have seen a lot of mental health information that you guys are pumping out. What are your thoughts on that? What do you you worry about? Anxiety 
the search for anxiety and anxiety-related medicines is seven times in during the past year than it was in previous years. Seven times as often people are, are looking for help. So like you, I do worry about the mental health implications from this pandemic, which is an infectious disease pandemic, but we have mm -hmm. the mental health aspects. And so we've talked about, it's not a light switch. It's not all of a sudden you, you turn it on and everyone's gonna you know, start having parties. I know some people have said, it's gonna be like the roaring twenties after <laughs> you know, the, the 1918 pandemic. I'm not sure it will be because I think a lot of people will still be reticent about going out, but the, the effects of mental health are, are gonna be challenging. There were people that you know, are at risk for mental health issues that might've been pushed over by the pandemic. And then other people that the loneliness, the PTSD, the sadness, the sense of loss has pushed them over in terms of having a more serious condition. So I really worry about it. I, I think we're making progress in terms of you know, telehealth professionals, in terms of trying to have more reach, but we don't have enough mental health providers. We need to let people know that it's okay to say I'm not okay. And that takes work. It takes a mindset um, and, and really a change. So we're really gonna have to be vigilant about the mental health consequences from the pandemic because those are gonna linger like you said, much longer than this pandemic. Cause we'll get over this at some point, hopefully this year, but we're not just gonna quickly turn on and say, we're all fine from a mental health perspective. You know, it's interesting, like the, the question, how are you doing? It's one of the worst questions we can ask a person because we mm -hmm. rarely tell people, especially people we don't know mm -hmm. very well, how we're doing. Yeah. Because usually, you know, it can be very private or, yeah. You have other things to go do, but mm -hmm. it sure is powerful when you really listen to somebody yeah. and you tell them, well, we're having issues with, you know, kid A at home or mm -hmm. kid B or have you, I have really found that actually having those conversations with close friends and, and I'm a pretty private person, mm -hmm. just the way I was brought up, mm -hmm. but having some very vulnerable conversations with friends who have children similar age and have been mm -hmm. having similar issues has been one of the most productive things I've done in the last few months, especially. But it, it takes a while to get to the place where you feel comfortable doing it. Absolutely. And, and we have to be interested and be ready for the response. We ask that, how are you doing? But we don't really follow up. We don't say, how are you doing? Really? We don't say, how are your kids? Are they having any trouble at school? We need to be doing more of that. Not like we're being an investigator. Right, uh, right. Really or being snoopy to, or gossipy. Right. It's really yeah. caring about people. To, to express, you know, our, our concern as well. And even, you know, close family members and friends are struggling and to be able to have that opportunity to dig in a little deeper and ask more pointed questions. And, and then be ready for a response that you might not expect. Like you said, I've heard from lots of friends that, who never experienced it that I knew of, of mental health issues and have talked about themselves struggling with isolation. We forget everyone doesn't have a partner, a family, close friends nearby. And for some folks, many folks, it has been a real challenge dealing with this. And now's the time we really need to be reaching out to family and friends as well as for ourselves, mm -hmm. reaching out if we need help. 
So what can we be doing now, assuming that, you know, the light is near, (laughs) that we're coming (laughs) to a better place? What can we be doing now to put ourselves in a good place physically, mentally, emotionally, to be ready to really live life to the fullest when we're in a better place pandemic wise? And sometimes it's incremental, meaning that we, you know, we don't have to do everything at once. And, you know, we talked about on a show uh, at WebMD, New Year's resolutions, now's not the time to say, oh, I'm going to lose, you know, 15 pounds, but rather say, and um, what am I good at? You know, we're, we're so quick to criticize ourselves and others, but if I asked you, what are you bad at? Typically, people will give 10 things, and I say, what are you good at? And you struggle to say one or two things. Well, we need to turn that on the reverse and celebrate what you do well. What are you good at? What do you like doing? Let's start with that and, and praise that. And although I said, you know, we don't want to focus on saying, well, I have to lose 15 pounds. And, you know, we've called it COVID-15 because many people have gained 50 <laughs> pounds instead of COVID-19. You know, we want to start thinking again about how do we eat healthy? How do we try to be physically active? How do we reduce the use of alcohol, or tobacco, et cetera? Because Let's be honest, there's a mind-body connection. We've known it for thousands of years, we just don't always acknowledge it. And that if you start to eat more healthy, start to be more physically active, you're gonna feel better. If you went for a run, if you went on the treadmill or you went to the gym, do we ever say, oh, I wish I didn't go? (laughs) How do we feel afterwards? Uh You feel like, I'm king of the hill. Like that's what my eight-year-old will say. We don't ever say, oh, we feel lousy after that. So there is that mind-body connection. Oh, I love that. So really focus and believe in, test out that mind-body connection. So it's about self-care. We need to be taking care of ourselves. Now's the time to start thinking about that, how we do that. And, And not trying to do it all in one day, but recognizing it's a journey and there's ups and downs. You mentioned the uh, dramatic increase in searches for anxiety meds and Mm -hmm. anxiety in general. What would be a a number three for this list of how to emerge from this stronger in terms of your own mental health and settling your brain? Because I hear a lot of people saying, I can never quiet my brain. What's a third thing that we could do to really start focusing on that and in small ways? And there's a lot more focus now on mindfulness. And I didn't really know that much about it beforehand. Um, but I've taken the time to learn about it and, and to try it. And there's lots of good apps on it. And, and the reason why I say that is it's not about going into a room, closing the lights and then staring at the wall. There, there's a process yep. to it for one to get the most success. And it's not something that you have to do in hour a day. So there's lots of good apps relating to mindfulness, but it's also in some ways, as we just talked about doing a self inventory and acknowledging your feelings and calling them for what they are with no judgment, whether it's anger. There's a lot of people that are angry because they had to go to work as an essential worker and put themselves and their family at risk and other people didn't. And then they don't see people practicing, you know, public health safeguards and it makes them mad. So how, how do you deal with that? How do you, you know, address your emotions, recognize when you need help. Everyone doesn't have to go to a mental health professional, but there are, are times when you might. And how do you start to get those resources available? So it is that sense of self-inventory and, and acknowledging your feelings without any type of value judgment on it. And then, you know, again, recognizing it's all connected. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it's a, also just a desire to want to be in a good place when we're all yeah. in a better place. That's right. And it's, it's going to be incremental and it's going to take time. And you bring up a great point. It's not just going to change overnight one day, if, you know, hopefully we reach 70% immunity. Everything is, you know, it's back. I think it's gradual. Like where I live, the schools are starting to reopen this week on a hybrid model. So they were all virtual. Some other places had it different. I think as we start to see in other areas when they can with, you know, indoor dining, opening other things, it's going to be a gradual process. But then we also have to recognize people that have lost their jobs that, you know, have that financial stress and financial anxiety. And how do we make sure they get resources? It's not their fault if their business wasn't able to function and had to close because of a pandemic that occurs once a century. You know, let, let's recognize that. It's not your fault. Anything you're feeling is not your fault. So how do we help manage it? We uh, had a guest on a few months ago who uh, does brand management for companies. Mm. And the question that he now asks young people that he says everybody should be able to answer mm -hmm. is, what did you learn during the pandemic? And mm. I, as I thought about the question, I'm like, that is such a wonderful question. Like, what did you learn? How did you grow? What mm -hmm. skill did you take out of it? Mine personally has been to not be so reactive to things, which for me was a big deal. <laughs> mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you can cut me off in traffic. It no longer bothers mm -hmm. me, which is a wonderful yeah. way to drive, I might add. Mm -hmm. what, would, what would be your answer to that question? Um, yeah. And I know you like the data, but what, what's the one thing that yeah. you have learned or have, one thing that's changed in you in the last year, would you say? I'll, I'll tell you something that I'm very thankful for is... Um, all of my jobs, I've always traveled a lot. You mentioned traveled a lot at mm -hmm. Discovery Channel. I also traveled a lot at the FDA because I was responsible for this office of engagement. And even you know, at WebMD, the offices are elsewhere, not where I live. So I'd have to travel a lot. And, and I have a wife and, and young children. And I thought about it the other day. I've had like 700 meals together. <laughs> we literally have dinner every yes. night together and you so many lunches too. lunch not as much because it's kind of like the hobbit where they have first yeah. dinner second dinner right, <laughs> that's what right, it's like right so, so i'm like meals. 700 meals at least and i've loved it and i'm here literally every single day being able to to put my kids to bed and and i loved it before and i'm a very involved dad and i love it even more and recognize you know, some of the things I liked about travel, I, I don't really need that to, to be mm -hmm. happy. There's so many other things I enjoy going, you know, to dinner with clients and others. There's, there's some benefit to it, but I'm also fine just staying home. So that's something that I've learned about myself. I've learned how to be a good multitasker. Yes. <laughs> many people do to balance lots of, of different things. So, you know, I try to look very much on, on the positive. I've, I've learned that, uh, you know, for me, so I've, I've gained weight like many other people. I'm still struggling with how do, how do I fit it all in? Although I'm a multitasker, I may not always prioritize well. And like many of the listeners, I haven't always prioritized health. And you think, and I do think that I'm like, I'm home every day. Like, how can yeah. I not find 30 minutes? And, and I have excuses like everyone else. I'm like, oh, I, I want to spend time with my kids. Or I'll say, oh, you know, I'm going to be on a Zoom later. I can't be sweating. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, well, whatever i'll be honest got, it it makes you that much more likable when you're that human about it too yeah, i've got it i've got it all in terms of excuses but that's something that i have to 
you know, right. sort right. out. But I've also, you know, realized, um, you know, even as I think about data, I've learned about the importance of communicating that data. And I've been on meetings where I've talked about data and then someone will say, and this is the power of storytelling. Um, and they'll be like, well, there's data, but there's also fear. And I'm like, well, they're not, mm. I can see how they're related, but you can't dismiss data completely yes. either. But then you also can't dismiss people's fear right, either. Right. So, so how do you address it? And that's, that's pretty hard to do. But what well, I'm trying have, to do- You have to communicate. Yeah. But what I'm trying to, to do is think of the positive things that I can take from the pandemic. And, and I would encourage folks to, you know, despite all the, the sadness around the pandemic, what the positive things that one can take from the pandemic as well in terms of how you're doing. Well, I can't think of a better way to end. Uh, Dr. White, what's a great way for people to keep in touch with you? Sure. People can find me on Twitter and Instagram and, and clearly on <laughs> WebMD. And clearly there. Always, I always enjoy talking to you. And I think it's important to get this type of information out. So I appreciate the opportunity. How often do you talk to Dr. Oz these days? I'm imagining you, know, so you two I being text friends. <laughs> we, we are text friends. As I said, I've known him for 20 plus years. And one of the last times I was in New York, I, I visited him while I was in New York pre-pandemic. So, uh, you know, I, I tease him. We've always had a good banter just because we've known each other for so long. So, And I appreciate what he has done as well. Oh, I, I think he has uh, created some really frank conversations in our country about healthcare that were long overdue. And he has a real knack for getting people to listen, which I appreciate. I'm so glad that you guys talked and he sent you down this path. <laughs> he does take credit for it. <laughs> oh, well, why not? <laughs> if you have the data to back it, there you are go. you really taking there you credit? Go. Right. <laughs> I think that was Muhammad Ali. Anyway, well, thank you so much, Dr. Absolutely. We appreciate it and keep up the good work at WebMD. Great seeing you. Our review of the week comes from Apple Podcasts from listener Todd Mal. Outstanding. I really enjoyed Deirdre's interviews. If it is a subject I am interested in, I am usually hanging on to every question. Well done, Fitz. Appreciate it. Thanks for doing that because those reviews and sharing them absolutely helps us grow the show, especially on Instagram. If you have a guest suggestion, you can always DM me on Instagram. You'll find me at runreadsip. Thanks for listening this week and I'll catch you next time on Dying to Ask.